Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 20 of Cosmic Controversy. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome Clive Neal, a professor of planetary geology at the University of Notre Dame and an expert on lunar science and the Apollo program's moon rock samples. Originally from the UK, Neil obtained his PhD in chemistry and petrology from the University of Leeds. A former chair of NASA's Lunar Exploration Analysis Group, Neil is currently a member of the National Academy's Committee on Astrobiology and Planetary Science and has even helped train future NASA astronauts. In fact, in 2015, he received the NASA Wargo Award for contributions to the integration of exploration and planetary science throughout his career. Neil joins us from South Bend, Indiana. Clive, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So it's been nearly 50 years since the Apollo 17 crew stepped back into the lunar module and left the fascinating taurus Litro Valley behind. If we were standing on the moon where the astronauts Gene Cernan and Harrison Jack Schmidt once explored, what would we be seeing? Oh, we'd be seeing the, the remnants of the lander. We've got some great images from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter camera of the Apollo 17 site. You can still see the footprints of the astronauts. You can still see the uh, descent stage on the, uh, on the lunar surface. You can see where they set up the um, Apollo lunar surface experiment package. You can see the rover. Um, you can see many things. So you can actually still follow their um, their exploration of the Taurus Litro Valley, uh, just from the fact that uh, the the rover tracks and the and the footprints are still still present, and uh, we can we've got great images of those from uh, from orbit. Uh, from the uh, from the lunar reconnaissance orbiter, so so these are great pictures actually to sort of show people in terms of well we never went there it was all done in Hollywood, so so that that's a that's a good thing to have we have we have evidence, right and so but if we were there in the flesh at eye level I mean just uh, what would we what would it remind us of on Earth uh, is there any comparison. Um, well, if if you look at look at the, the you know, there's, there's there's no vegetation, there's no life on the moon, so you're dealing with a a sand filled desert valley. You can think of it that way. Uh, pretty monochromatic until you get to station four, which was uh, where uh, Jack found the orange glass. But uh, you're you're dealing with a a pockmark. Think of it as a as a uh, um, army training ground where there have been exploding shells. So you've got all the craters around, and then you can look over to the valley walls and you can see the what they call the north and south massifs, uh, the mountains that are that are rising up either side of that valley. So, so it, there are some um, comparisons we can look at here on Earth, but uh, the big difference is there's no atmosphere, there's no vegetation. And um, I, I've only met one moonwalker, and Schmidt was uh, was a guy. And uh, the, one of the first questions I asked was, uh, "What did the lunar regolith feel like beneath his feet?" And he said it kind of had the quality of wet beach sand. And if you tapped on it, uh, 
that uh, Cernan apparently could kind of feel the vibrations a few feet away. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 interesting thing about that, the, you know, the, the the wet beach sand analogy is is quite amazing because there's no no liquid water on the on the moon, but the fact that the the lunar regolith is very angular, um, and and there has been seismic shaking over millions of years, uh, billions of years through meteoroid impact and moonquakes. So these the angular the angular pieces of the regolith are actually interlocked together. So the density as you get below the first several centimeters is is quite high because there's very little pore space. So that allows when he taps the the ground, uh, Gene could have felt that through his feet because of the energy transmission uh, through that interlocked regolith. That's uh, that's that's quite an amazing thing. Everybody thinks, oh, it's just just a bunch of sand. It's easy to move. Uh, originally, it was thought that the Apollo landers would sink into the regolith because it would be so fluffy. Hence, you look at the big pizza pan uh, landing feet uh, to ensure that that didn't happen. And of course, as we know, that that didn't that didn't happen. So uh, so so yeah, that that that's another another fascinating feature of the of the lunar regolith. And since you are a geologist, uh, uh, for the listener, the the uh, regolith is not soil. I mean, uh, sometimes it's uh, called soil in the media, but it's regolith. Can you explain what regolith actually is? Well, if you look at uh, regolith, is is unconsolidated material, a rock material. A soil is something that has organic matter in it that can sustain life. Uh, there's no organic matter in the lunar regolith, so. It is called soil colloquially. Um, that uh, it, it's referred to that everybody understands what soil is. Regolith is is something a bit more technical. So I'll have to take my technical hat off. That'll probably fall off in a little bit anyway. So um, <laughs> I think I think the, uh, I, 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 the it's unconsolidated material uh, that has been been placed on the surface. It's basically the ground up material of rocks that have been ground up through meteoroid impact. And uh, just a quick aside, I guess you saw the film The Martian uh, with Matt yep. Damon. So uh, we also call Mars's uh, surface uh, the, the regolith, Mars regolith, if I'm not yep. incorrect. Uh, yep. Is it uh, is it any richer, uh, or does it have a? Di- do you think it has a different consistency than the lunar regolith? It's uh, it's a bit finer uh, than than the lunar regolith, except for the very very top uh, material. The the thing about the Martian regolith is that there's uh, um, you you've you've got potential toxins in there with uh, with uh, clathrates and other things so, so that uh, that can be toxic to humans. Uh, we know that from the from the rovers, the Spirit and Opportunity rovers that wandered around on Mars for many years. So uh, yeah, the 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 Mars the Mars regolith is different. But many of the issues that will affect humans in terms of lunar regolith will will affect uh, will affect them on Mars in terms of dust and inhalation of dust. Um, and then the, the composition is going to be different, though. And uh, as I remember, the uh, the lunar astronauts uh, actually said that the dust had kind of the had a had a smell uh, like gunpowder. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, because of the because of the temperature. I mean, the, the daytime temperatures are, you know, well over a hundred Celsius. 
um, and then they drop down close to minus 200 Celsius at night. There's a lot of temperature swings. Uh, when you go from night to day, you uh, this, the very fact the sun is warming up the regolith, you end up, and this is recorded by the Apollo seismometers, there are actually thermal moonquakes that occurred as the Terminator passed uh, or the, as you went from night to day and day to night due to the expansion and contraction of the regolith. Okay, but why the smell? I mean, why 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 would it smell like gunpowder? Well, you, you heat something up to you know, continuously after every day that's going to give off that sort of odor once it gets into an atmosphere. Ah, okay. So, uh, and then the, you mentioned cat clathrates uh, on Mars. Could you give us a little bit, a quick parenthetical definition of that? That's a good question. Uh, clathrate. Oh. That's going to be something that uh, uh, is, is going to take me a bit more time than I can do here. I'm not a clathrate expert. All I know about clathrates is that this is, uh, this, it is going to be toxic to humans. You don't want to, uh, you don't want to inhale them. Um, but they're, me- they're methane-rich uh, carbon molecule, carbon-based right, molecules. Yeah. Right, right. All right. Right. It's, and, it's, uh, um, and a lot of times they sm- uh, actually are frozen on Earth. That. They can be frozen on Earth. You find clathrates in the in the deep ocean. Um, they they, they go, we call them gas hydrates here on Earth because there's a lot of water mixed in them, and it's a lot of methane that is uh, then kept uh, kept in solid form. Right. So, talking about warming of the oceans uh, and then liberating all those methane hydrates here on Earth. That's going to cause a, a major issue in terms of the runaway greenhouse effect that everybody's talking about um, in terms of the Earth's climate. So okay. then all the all the ice caps melt and Washington, D.C. is underwater, which could be interesting. So now you were a chair of the Lunar Sample Allocation Subcommittee uh, from 2005 to 2009. So how, let's talk a bit about the samples uh, how many pounds of samples approximately did the missions bring back from Apollo 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, and 17? Essentially, uh, six, mention, uh, six uh, missions, 13, obviously, was not able yeah. to land. I, I'm going to go metric on you. Um, uh, it's 382 kilos, so 2.2 pounds to a kilo. So you're uh, over 800 pounds in uh, in Church of England, if you like. Okay. Uh, the... the uh, the, the eight, eight, over 800 pounds of samples were brought back by the by humans. Um, interestingly, uh, the, the Soviet Union had three robotic sample return missions that were successful. And uh, between all three of them, they brought back less than a kilogram. So uh, you, you can see the... the the uh, utility of having humans there to collect the samples. And if you're going to bring the hum- humans back, you can bring back quite a few more samples than if you just do it robotically. But so, uh, how would you, how did they differ? Because uh, to the, to the untrained eye, they pretty much look all alike. Uh, but you know, they were from six different sample sites uh, right. where, where you're able to get any of that orange. Uh, we're going to talk about the pyroclastics later, but yep. uh, th- th- just essentially did the samples vary from site to site. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you, you look at Apollo 11, uh, landed in Mari Tranquillitatis and brought back uh, uh, these lava flows, basalt lava flows. We have a lot of basalts on this planet. Go to Hawaii, you walk on basalt. Hawaii is just all basalt or basalt if I'm speaking with an American accent. 
so so you 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 but the the interesting thing about the ones from Apollo 11 they they contained a lot of titanium uh, there are no rock types on earth that mirror the, the exact composition from from those from Apollo 11 and interestingly those same types of basalts were brought back by Apollo 17 uh, although slightly different in composition if you look at Apollo 12 these were low titanium basalts um, and and also some materials from the highlands those are the white white areas if you go out and look at the moon in full moon you can see the uh, the basaltic areas are the dark areas uh the, the, the mari or seas because originally uh, they were thought to be oceans on the moon um so they were called mari mm -hmm. uh, in latin um and uh, then apollo 14 was actually an ejector blanket landed on an ejector blanket from Mari Imbrium, one of these big basins on the near side, and brought back a, a bunch of uh, different breccias, very few uh, hand specimen sized basalt samples. Mm -hmm. um, Fifteen was to another low titanium site, but these these were rich in a component which is affectionately termed creep, K-R-E-E-P, uh, potassium, rare earth element, and phosphorus is what it means they're enriched in, but these contain a lot of um, rare earth elements uh, compared to the ones that have previously been brought back. And then Apollo 16 went to somewhere completely different. They went to a highlands region of the moon uh, on the near side and brought back, uh, originally it was thought to be made up of uh, silicic volcanics. Um, basalt is not very silica rich. So they, they're very runny. You have a lot of silica, you have very explosive volcanism. Uh, you have low silica, then it's more effusive. It flows and you have fire fountains and a lot of runny magma. But uh, the two astronauts, as soon as they walked out of the lunar module and uh, the back uh, science room was asking them about the, uh, uh, the silicic volcanics and they said, uh, we're not seeing that. And they say, oh, well, you must be. You must be seeing this. You, you're doing it all wrong. And then they, then they described what they were looking at. They were in a highlands region, and it was de dealing with something um, that was very different than what had been seen before. And they nailed it. They got it right. They described the, the, the terrains. They described all the uh, uh, samples that they found. And they said, no, we're in a highlands terrain. And what we're dealing with, these aren't volcanoes. These are craters. Mm. Uh, and these are impact craters, and it's a highly cratered area that we've that we've landed in. So, uh, so training comes in as uh, uh, the astronauts. That training allowed the very rich and varied uh, sample suite that was brought back. And so, silicic uh, volcanics is what? Uh, why is that significant? Silicic, explosive, and and on on the moon with the samples that we have, we have very very few. Um, examples of silica-rich materials. Mostly they're very silica-poor. Uh, you have the, as I say, the Mari are made up of basaltic uh, uh, volcanoes and, and lava flows. Uh, so they, they fire fountain, they flow. Um, if you come down to on, on this planet, you look at Mount St. Helens, that's a silicic volcano that blew its top and basically destroyed itself and sent, uh, and sent a lot of ash everywhere. In 1980, um, yeah, I, that's only about uh, 100 miles from me here. So there you go, yeah. there you go. So so it's uh, um, 
that's 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 the that's the interesting thing about the, the or the the eruptive styles are very different depending upon the silica content and the gas content of the magma. And what is the significance of the samples being titanium rich or or titanium depleted? What, what? Well, it's it, it tells us uh, from what we've understood and from the first samples brought back Apollo eleven, it was it was uh, the idea that the moon accreted in a very violent manner uh, was born and that we had a magma ocean and that the the interior of the moon is actually processed uh, these basalts come from a processed source i.e the, the material that crystallized out of this magma ocean so the the early early materials would be titanium poor and as the the the, uh, the, the liquid became more evolved as more material was crystallized out became enriched in titanium, um, and uh, the later stages contained the mineral ilmenite, which is an iron-titanium iron trioxide, which is probably a bit technical. But, uh, but the, the thing with this, this ilmenite mineral, is that, um, it, it, and finding it in such abundances in the Apollo 11 and 17 basalts, is that we know that they were derived from cumulates that were late uh, forming from the magma ocean, whereas those from 12... 14 and 15 were derived from cumulates that were um, uh, derived earlier in the in the magma ocean, and in 15 in the 15 case, some of those were actually contaminated by this last dregs of the magma ocean, this last liquid which was very enriched in all the elements that didn't go into those minerals that came out and formed uh, the, uh, the the crust, the highlands crust of the moon, i.e. the white material is called plagioclase. And that floated to the top of the magma ocean. And then the ilmenite is dense and it sank into the mantle and formed the source regions for these high titanium basalts. So, so, uh, so are you confident uh, that the... I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you are, but I'm going to ask this question. So are you confident that our moon was formed after a catastrophic Mars-sized impactor hit Earth some 4.5 billion years ago? Or I am. Okay. So there's no possi- there's no possible way that the moon might have simply have been gravi- gravitationally captured by our young Earth. There are there are um, significant people in the community that think we need to not throw those ideas away. There are a number of things with the giant impact that suggest that. Um, that, that are inconsistent with that, one of which is the presence of volatiles in the moon, presence of water in the moon, not on the moon, in the moon. Um, in the, in, in the interior, you mean, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And so if you have a giant impact that threw out debris that then violently coalesced to form the moon and the magma ocean, how can you still have water-rich regions in the interior of the moon? So, so you know, the idea of... of of uh, you know, it was good when we thought that the moon was was bone dry, and then uh, when when as analytical uh, techniques got more and more sophisticated, it was actually shown that some of these samples contained water. Well, where did that come from? Well, we don't know. So so that's that's that then throws a a, a bit of a curve at the uh, at the giant impact theory, which should we. If you just take it at at, uh, at the energy that's involved, it should have driven off a lot of the volatiles. So, how well do, do we actually understand the moon? Um, the Mars, wow. the, yeah. the Mars <laughs> science ad- advocates, uh, you know, say, "Oh well, 
you know, we pretty much have a handle on it. Uh, we need to just head straight to Mars and do the lunar, uh, do the Mars science. science. Are we seventy five percent there? Fifty percent there? Eighty percent there? What? Let me answer it this way. All right, people who think that we understand the moon don't understand the moon. All right. <laughs> okay. So. Because, because let, me, let me just say this. We thought we understood the moon until 2008. And then the moon has a water cycle. How, do, how can the moon have a water cycle? We, don't, we, you know, we were trying to, trying to figure that out. So, okay, well, that's, that's good. And then we start finding you know, ice deposits on the surface of the moon at the pol- polar regions. So the more we look, the more we realized how, how little we understand about our moon. Our moon is a complicated um, body. It is, it is formed, has a very unique formation, but its differentiation, i.e. how it actually formed and coalesced and then formed a crust, a mantle, and a core, uh, gives us great insights into how our planet did that, how Earth did it, how Mars did it, how Venus did it, how Mercury did it, um, because it's, it forms an M-member. It's preserved its initial... Uh, differentiation is the way I will put it, how it actually formed that initial crust, mantle, and core um, um, of, the, of the moon. Because it's so small, its heat engine is, is, is quite small. So that preservation has not been destroyed by subsequent activity. So that's why when we, we look at those, those uh, basalts that were derived from the, the lunar mantle, we can say, oh, these represent early der- derivation from early magma ocean cumulus. Uh, these you know come from from late but it's it's the it's then you start looking and you start seeing oh oh there are actually very young volcanics on the moon how how, how? that can't happen why is it happening so something something was going on with that oh we've actually got evidence now that there was a a transient atmosphere during some of these volcanic eruptions well, there must have been a lot of gas involved, a lot of volatiles, but the moon can't have any volatiles. So the more we look, the more questions we get. And so, so what, I, what about the... Put, I can't put a percentage oh, on okay. yeah. oh, how, how much further do we have to go. Because the more we look, the less we know. Right. But that's, a, that's <laughs> the nature of science, isn't it? I mean, Is it, Isn't it just? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, explain what you mean by the lunar water cycle, because a lot of people probably aren't familiar with that. Yeah, 2008, there was a paper that came out in Nature that showed that these pyroclastic glass beads, volcanic glasses from Apollo 15, uh, had volatile abundances within them, and they defined a diffusion profile, i.e. they were derived from the interior of the moon. They were erupted in a fire fountain out into the vacuum of space, and they thought that froze in uh, the, uh, froze these little glass beads. And you can see... Uh, that water, sulfur, chlorine, fluorine were all diffusing out of these glasses or these, this magma as it was erupted to the surface. This means that the source region contained a lot of these, these volatiles. You then couple that with the, the Moon Mineralogy Mapper instrument on the Chandrayaan-1 spacecraft in, from India uh, that was there in uh, 2008, 2000, 2008, 2009 actually launched in 2007, I believe. Um, and it showed uh, from orbit that uh, the, there was a, 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 uh, um, a, a water signature on, on the crust of the moon, on the very surface of the moon, 
that migrated towards the poles as lunar night went to lunar day. So you've, you've got that sort of issue. And then, then there's now definitive evidence that some of the permanently shadowed craters at the poles, which are very cold, the average annual temperatures don't get above 60 Kelvin, or what is that, minus 213 Celsius. And they trap a lot of volatiles, and, and, and water ice has been definitively proven to be in at least one of them. Um, so we have water in the interior. Oh, and the other thing is, is that uh, using that moon mineralogy mapper data, some of these pyroclastic deposits, these volcanic uh, glass deposits, contain hydration signatures that we can see uh, on the surface from space. So we've got water in the interior, we've got water on the surface, we've got water stored in these cold traps at the poles. Throughout the moon's history, there has been a water cycle of um, delivery to the moon. It could have been through uh, water-rich comets. It could be from uh, uh, water-rich meteoroids and asteroids, uh, but it could have been from outgassing during, high high, uh, during periods of high uh, volcanism or high volcanic activity. Uh, but they are, they are moving, water is moving within or out of the interior. Uh, it is being brought in from uh, extralunar sources um, and it's being migrated along the surface and it is being stored in cold traps. So we have a water cycle going on and we've only just recognized that since about 2008. So when we start having humans living there sustainably and for extended periods of time, what else are we going to find and understand? And what, what new samples are we going to bring back? There have been a lot of, you know, a lot of missions to the moon this century uh, from, you know, China, from India, from Japan, from the US, from, from and even Israel has tried to, to, to get to the moon and land. Um, uh, hopefully next time they'll be successful. But uh, the interest is there and we have a lot of great um, data sets that have showed us that there are materials on the surface that we simply don't have any samples of anyway. So the more we look, the more we find, and the more we realize how little we know. Well, let's talk about the, the topography on the near side a bit. Um, you mentioned the highlands, which are the oldest, uh, to, which is the oldest topography on the moon, 456 uh, 4.5 yeah, billion yeah, years about old. 4.5. 4.5. Start, started filming about that. Right. And then the, the, the Maria and the Oceanus uh, Procellarum uh, are much younger. The darker areas are much, the smoother areas are much younger. What about the, one of the easy, most easily recognized areas, uh, the Tycho Crater at the bottom of mm -hmm. the near side uh, that anybody can pretty much see if they have their glasses on at night. <laughs> right, <laughs> Some right. of us may need binoculars, but whatever. Um, so do you have any, in, in, any insight into the timing of the impactor that caused that uh, beautiful crater? Well, you, you, it's, it's so vibrant because it is relatively young. Ah. It hasn't, hasn't been exposed to space weathering, which tends to dull those wonderful rays coming out of it. But relatively young still means millions of years. It could still mean that. One of the important, uh, um, one of the things that's come out of all these missions this century is that we now know where to go to get samples to answer important science questions. And one of those is going to known craters that contain impact melt, 
collecting the impact melt and getting a quantitative age out of that melt so that we can put an age on that crater. Now that's important for understanding the bombardment history of the uh, uh, of the inner solar system, um, and it's and it's also important for then using the the lunar chronology that we can get from these craters to get to say look at Mars, and then uh, then say okay well we now we've got a surface on Mars that has these types of craters and this amount of crater cratering going on, we give it an age of this based upon the lunar experience. Um, but the we, right now, if you look at the Apollo samples, they only they only give you ages between about 3.2 and about 3.9, 4.0 billion years for these for these craters. And we know from just crater counts that that's good for anchoring one part of the crater count curve. We know that there are younger areas, but we don't know the exact ages of those. So it's, it's important to, to target those types of impact melts to actually uh, definitively give an age to certain craters and crater types uh, to answer important solar system science questions. Uh, for example, one thing that has been postulated from the lunar samples is that around about 3.9, there was a, 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 a terminal cataclysm where there was a great in, increase of uh, cratering due to an influx of material because the outer planets rearranged and completely messed up the gravitational equilibrium, um, especially in the asteroid belt. And so a lot of that material was thrown into the inner solar system. And that could have been the material that seeded Earth in terms of the, the, the prebiotic molecules that were needed to eventually allow life to evolve. Um, but that's, that's a hypothesis that can be tested by looking at ancient and young craters on the moon, getting a definitive age date, to see if certain that there's a certain um, uh, population of craters that give you that 3.9 around that 3.9 billion year old uh, age for for their formation. So, and we've got that uh, that that lab in our back garden. It's not that far away. Right. Oh no, I totally agree. And um, so the oldest impact basin, I believe, is the South Pole Aiken Basin. It's mm -hmm. the deepest and largest impact basin on the moon diameter of some 2,600 kilometers. Biggest hole in the solar system. So, And um, so it's, it's thought to have been have actually exposed mantle from the moon. Well, it's, 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 it's exposing material that uh, I think the Ch Ch Chinese Chang'e 4 mission that ha have, have suggested is mantle. Um, however, we've got similar composition material in the Apollo collection uh, that has been shown not to be mantle. It's a, it's, a, it's a shallowly crystallized magma. It was derived from the mantle, but it's not mantle material. It's not solid mantle that's been, been uh, brought to the surface. Uh, it's been melted first. Let's, let's put it that way. So I uh, didn't realize that Chang'e 4 actually landed uh, in that basin, did it? I didn't. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, Von Karman Crater in the South Pole Aiken Basin. It's another. It's a younger crater in the middle of the of the South Pole Aiken Basin. But with with SPA being uh, being that big, there was a huge amount of impact melt that was produced that homogenized crust and mantle material, and then that differentiated. So finding, I, I, I'm very skeptical of finding mantle material at the surface of of South Pole Aiken Basin. What you're going to find is um, uh, um, differentiated or crystallized impact melt. 
And so, uh, that, and that, that, so you don't think the Chinese have sampled the mantle itself? You think nope. it's impact melt? No, they they may have may have done, but the evidence is not what a it's not um, cut and dry. And so the it can be inter- it has a, it has it has another interpretation. Right. They don't have any at this point. The, it's not a sample return mission. I don't know if they have one in the in the uh, in the works. But uh, Changa Five is supposed to launch on November the twenty fourth, and they're doing sample return to Northern Mari Imbrium on the near side. Okay. So, um, but the SPA significance is that, uh, you know, some people have written that it would answer sampling this mantle material. If we could actually find, you know, real mantle uh, near the surface in the SPA, the, the South Pole Aiken Basin, it would answer fundamental questions about lunar and solar system evolution mm-hmm. and establish the SPA's uh, large impact uh, chronology. Is that is that right? Well, it's estab- establishing that chronology. Um, for example, if we, if we, the problem you've got with SPA is that it's a big, covers a big area, so it's been impacted by a lot of younger um, craters. It has a lot of younger craters within it. So you get an impact melt. Now, are you sampling an SPA impact melt or are you getting an impact melt from some of these younger craters? Mm-hmm. So um, that's the problem when you're when you're targeting these older basins. Is are we getting something that was actually original to the formation of the basin, or or is it uh, is it a sample that is from say von, the impact melt that formed when von Karman crater erupted? And the thing with von Karman crater is that then it, basalts erupted into that basin. So you've then covered that up with with other things. And the SPA. So, uh, the, so there's trying to find a definitive sample that you could say this is SPA impact melt to date the basin. Basin is very, very difficult. So, can anyone with a good pair of binoculars or a good backyard telescope uh, look at the South Pole and see the start of the Aiken Basin? Nope. No. Nope. Okay. Nope. You wouldn't. You wouldn't know if you if you if it was to start or not because of all the subsequent impacts that are there. You look at the South, South Pole, it's pockmarked with many, many smaller craters. So do you have any idea about the size of the object that caused that basin? <laughs> it's a planet killer. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. It's a, it's, 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 a, it's a big boy. And if that hit Earth, then that may take care of life on Earth. What about the, the Schrodinger basin, basin? Is that now within the SPA or is that just adjacent? Yep, that's, okay. that's within the South Pole Lake and it's a subsequent impactor. Um, it, it formed a multi-ring basin and it, it is, has a very similar morphology to the Chicxulub impact crater here on Earth, the one that, uh, that is responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs. So how does actually studying uh, the dinosaur killing impact, and I think the DECA... Um, the Deccan, Deccan traps. the Deccan traps, the volcanic traps, are thought to have contributed to the subsequent uh, demise of the dinosaurs. I mean, that's that's kind of been a theory in the last uh, what uh, ten years. I don't know. Yeah, it's, if you if you look at what was happening um, leading up to uh, the Chicxulub event, a lot of the dinosaur species were in decline due to the stress on the environment because of the Deccan traps eruptions this super volcano going off in India. So uh, um, then, then, it, then you have this, this planet killer come in and, and just 
takes takes care of business. And so, so. But if you had to compare the uh, the impactor the with the object that that hit the Chicxulub, is it uh, pretty much the the same size as the one that created the South Pole Aiken Basin? Oh, it's much smaller. Much smaller. Oh. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. If you look at Chicxulub Basin, it's actually smaller than Schrodinger. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. And so. So, and then you you go you go to go to yeah the yeah Earth would not be a happy place if it got hit by an SBA sized impact. How does studying Chicxulub on Earth help in in the lunar geology? I think it's the other way around. I think that because we've got better exposures of, of impact craters on the moon, the moon helps us study Chicxulub. Ah, okay. So, so we, we understand now the the impact process on the basis of what we've learned. We, we can define the impact uh, the impact site through gravity data. You won't, you can also define it by sinkholes in the, in the, uh, in the limestone that was deposited, um, you can you can define some of the some of the crater parameters from that. So it's it's really quite a, a, a bizarre feature, uh, but it's buried. Um, so either we drill or we use geophysics to remotely sense what what's beneath it. But we can see those ring structures that that have that have uh, been identified through geophysics. We can see those exposed in Schrodinger. Between the far side and near side, the far side is much more is much heavily more heavily cratered than the near side. Mm-hmm. The uh, far side has a thinner crust than the near side. Is that right? No, near side has a thinner crust. The than near, the far okay, side. I got I got I got it wrong. The near side has a thinner crust, and the far yeah. side has a thicker yeah. crust. Yeah, far and, side far side highlands um, they 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 they're much more heavily cratered because they're much older. Okay. Than the than the than the Maria on the on the near side. So you're you're dealing with well, there's there's the question. So why does the far side have a thicker crust than the near side? Did it did it did the near side crust all get gardened off by asteroidal impact and redeposited on the far side? Again, we don't know. We we don't have any definitive samples from the far side. So there's there's uh, orbital data to suggest that the far side highlands materials are a slightly different composition than the near side. Uh, but we, we've got lunar meteorites that uh, look different from Apollo, but we don't know exactly. We know they came from the moon, but where on the moon is a is anybody's guess. The more you look, the more you realize, well, I don't really understand that. <laughs> well, what about here on Earth? I mean, is one side of the Earth, the does one side of the Earth have a thinner crust than, than nope. the other? No? Nope, no, because we've got, uh, we've got continents still moving around uh, the Earth's surface. They've not. Uh, we have plate tectonics. The Moon does not. Right, and so the Moon uh, never had a global magnetic field. It just had remnant magnetism. Well, that's uh, that's that was a thought, but now we there's a school of thought that thinks there was a magnetic field um, that lasted maybe maybe up to two and a half billion years ago. The there there are. Obviously, grand grand hypotheses require grand information, um, and and there are a number of samples, old samples that were brought back during the Apollo missions that do have a a, a, a magnetic signature suggestive of a global uh, field, a, a magnetic field on the moon. And that would be very helpful in 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 
maintaining a transient atmosphere because solar wind tends to strip off atmospheres if the gravity is low and there's no magnetic field. Well, we know there's low gravity on the moon um, and we now know that, the, well, we know that there's, not, there's an exosphere, which is not an atmosphere. Now, a difference, an exosphere means that there are molecules close to the surface, but they don't bump into each other. Right. Uh, whereas on the, at the atmosphere we have here, very breathable. Okay. Um, if and, you didn't have an atmosphere, you wouldn't be able to hear me. So. Okay, so in Mars and uh, Mercury, neither had uh, global um, uh, plate tectonics at all. Uh, Mercury, in fact, if you look at it at first glance, it looks a lot like the moon uh, for, to the uninitiated. Um, is there any evidence on Mars or Mercury that, uh, that one side has a thinner crust than the other? Um, the thing with Mercury is that a lot of its material has been stripped away. Ah, okay, yeah. Um, and, and again, by, by uh, impacts uh, in a solar system, impacts so so it's um it's it's an interesting interesting place we messenger was the last mission to go there um be great to have samples but that's that's really complicated uh so it's it's trying to understand that on a on a uh, orbital mission um again we we know enough to make ourselves dangerous i think with mercury Right, um, but uh, as we as hopefully we will get samples back one day, uh, maybe not not in my lifetime, but uh, uh, hopefully we'll get samples back that uh, will tell us a lot more about how Mercury formed because it's an enigma. Um, its orbit, its uh, its makeup, um, the fact that you've got water ice on the surface of Mercury and it's that close to the sun. It shows you that, uh, and, and in, in many, if not all, of the permanent shadow craters they have there, shows you it has a complex, uh, ha has had a complex evolution. So, uh, is understanding the moon really crucial then in understanding our inner solar system? Absolutely, absolutely. The, the, you, you go to the moon. You're not doing just lunar science. You're doing solar system science. You're even, you're even do, looking at heliophysics. You're even looking at sun science. Because um, they're, they're, the regolith has retained a lot of the solar wind um, uh, volatiles, so it gives us a signature of the sun. And if you've got regoliths between lava flows developed, they will contain a signature of the sun at that time of regolith formation. So we can actually we actually uh, can go to the moon to understand our sun. Um, and and if you then use the moon to understand the cratering of the inner solar system, the cratering history of the inner solar system, the moon again forms the cornerstone of our understanding of our, of our solar system. So, so to ignore the moon um, because it's not very interesting is, is, is a way to ignore the solar system, in my opinion. And the, the, moon, the moon presents a, a treasure trove of, of, of data. Yes, there's a lot of good lunar science there, but it also helps us understand our solar system a lot better than we would without a moon. So I guess uh, you, you followed both the, Gr the Grail mission and the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter missions mm -hmm. mission, rather. Uh, and so, what did these two missions bring to our understanding of the moon's interior, the formation, the evolution, whatever? Okay. The the if you look at look at Grail, um, 
Grail gave us um, great uh, a, a great detail on on crustal thickness. So we just talked about the far side being thicker than the, than the near side. So uh, Grail brought some fidelity to that. There's, there's been, uh, been, been a lot of work done in looking at Grail data. Uh, the, then looking at the understanding of uh, the interior of the moon, the size of the uh, core. Um, the pro problem you have with Grail data is that in order to look deeper into the interior, they actually use the Apollo seismic data as a, as a way to sort of ground truth it. Mm -hmm. uh, Apollo seismic data has has a lot of issues when you go below about 500 kilometers into the moon, because the fidelity of a very narrow aperture of that uh, that network. Um, so Grail data are actually going to be enhanced by a future uh, lunar geophysical network that is global, and gives it gives much better fidelity. So so. This is a data set in waiting. I think we've done a great first pass to it. Um, we've got uh, you know average crustal thickness on on the uh, near side of about 30, 34 kilometers, and uh, average on the far side to be about forty three. But of course, the extremes are much greater than that. Mari Crisium doesn't have any crust, um, according to the Grail data. But uh, but the fidelity of those data. Are, are fantastic. What we need then is to, is a way to standardize it a bit better than we did with Apollo seismic data. So um, I'm expecting new things to come out of uh, the Grail mission once uh, once we get a global geophysical network back on the moon, which hopefully will happen by the end of this decade. That's that's my hope. Um, and in terms of lunar reconnaissance orbiter, it's it's a, that mission has been a game changer. Uh, the, the fidelity of photography that we've gotten from there, as I mentioned earlier, the you know the Apollo sites have all been imaged in great detail. Um, the lunar reconnaissance orbiter actually they found a, a lost lunar cod rover that uh, um, that had a, a a laser retroreflector on. Uh, the Apollo missions put down retroreflectors on the lunar surface and and. And we're still ranging to those today. And this is more astrophysics uh, research than lunar research. But it does show that the moon is, is receding from us. We, it, we're going to lose the moon one day. Not in our lifetimes, but uh, one day the moon will go away. So uh, what about that huge boulder, that the iconic boulder that, that Schmidt is, uh, is, was photographed uh, standing next mm -hmm. to, and he was sampling around the boulder? You're, you're dealing with something what 15, 20 feet diameter, uh -huh. and that's that's a piece of impact ejector. Pan out, you can see the boulder trail down the down the uh, down the hillside at Taurus Litro. So so you look at the size of that boulder in relative to to Jack Schmidt, and you, you've got you've got something that's 15, 20 feet diameter, um, maybe bigger, but that's a piece of impact ejector. Uh, you can you pan out from that, you can see the the boulder trace as it rolled down the hillside to end up where, where Jack finally sampled it and, and explored it. But uh, this, this is the forces that are at work when they're, we're throwing out boulders. Who knows where it came from? So in other words, uh, that boulder uh, was caused by, uh, it, that was, was ejected after an impact. And, Correct. And you have no clue as to where it could have come from. I mean, it could have come it's, from... It's, it's, yeah, it, it's it, something to be that big 
to be, th you know, you can see it rolling down the, uh, the, the, there is a boulder trail of where it landed and rolled down the, uh, uh, the slope. So you, you, that, that sort of thing gives you an idea of the forces of work. It's, it's an erratic to the Taurus Littrow Valley because it's, it's a bit like finding boulders from the Canadian Shield on Notre Dame campus. So are you saying down by the glaciers, but this is not glaciers. This is an impact. And I guess because uh, the uh, moon's gravity is only a sixth of Earth, then an impact ejecta could potentially travel hundreds or thousands of miles, maybe even. No? Sure. Yeah, they can even, you know, that's why we have lunar meteorites on Earth. Uh, impacts of ejected material out of the moon's gravitational field. So that one boulder might have uh, been ejected from the impact that created the Schrodinger Basin or the uh, the SPA. Indian Basin or the Serenitatis Basin or who knows. Okay. Or even Tycho maybe. I mean, is that a stretch? Could, okay. could be. Okay. Could be. So as I noted in Forbes, uh, there was a paper that posited that the lunar surface conditions may have supported simple life forms shortly after the moon formed. And again, during a peak in lunar vo volcanic activity around 3.5 billion years ago. And they argued that there was a chance that life might have even evolved in these hypothetical liquid water lunar surface pools. And that the early moon may have also had a significant, if not fleeting, atmosphere protected uh, from the solar wind by a magnetic field, which you, which you previously mentioned here. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think that's very plausible, um, given the type of atmosphere we would expect. Um, shortly after the moon formed, the, the, the transient atmosphere above the magma ocean would have been a silicate-rich atmosphere, not an oxygen-rich one. Um, it would have been very hot. Um, the idea of, of having water condensing is, is probably unlikely. When you, when you look at the peak of volcanism, uh, um, Again, the types of, of components, the gaseous components, they would not have been conducive to life as we know it. Um, and, and that's the only point of uh, um, reference that we have in terms of understanding life, is life as we know it. Uh, you, have to have a, you have to look at the, the composition of the atmosphere. It would be dominated by other things. There'd be a lot of sodium. There would be uh, um, a, a lot of... of of uh, volatile metals up there, uh, there would be you know, inert gases, the argons, the xenons, um, and then you get the, the halogens, chlorine, fluorine. So uh, the idea of having an atmosphere that would, would allow life to develop is probably pushing it a little bit. I'm not saying it's not impossible, but I would be surprised if that, was, that would be the case. Okay, and then uh, just a few days ago, I also did a Forbes post where I, uh, I noted that two uh, Yale University researchers found a potential shortcut in sampling Venus ancient, Venus's ancient surface instead of sending a probe on a costly and extraordinarily challenging Venus sample return. They proposed simply finding a Venusian meteorite on our own moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've had a... We've had a lot of um, uh, discussion on the Lunar Listserv about uh, finding meteorites from Venus on the moon. And you've got, okay, how would we recognize it, number one? 
how would it survive space weathering and micrometeoroid? You know, why why isn't it just reduced to regular sized material um, over the time that it takes uh, for it to to land on the moon and be found? Um, I'm 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 it's a hypothesis, and I again I remain open to new discoveries, but I don't think we're going to find Venusian uh, meteorites on the moon because the biggest gravity pull in the solar system is the sun. So to have something hit Venus and throw the material outwards away from the sun is, is, a, uh, is, is, is interesting. That would have to be one heck of a, an impact. Um, so, so. And not to say it hasn't occurred, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm, I'm a little skeptical because the moon is just not, you know, stuff doesn't just fall there and, and, and then, then it's waiting to be picked up. So the Planetary Society reported this week that NASA and Japan's uh, space agency, JAXA, have selected a new low-cost sample collection technology for a 2023 mission to the Mare Crisium, the Sea of Crises, on the moon's northeast mm -hmm. corner. And uh, the only other mission to the Mare Crisium was the Soviet Union's Luna 24 spacecraft, mm -hmm. which returned samples, yep. as you, I think, mentioned from the yep. region's southern area in 1976. So if this uh, NASA and JAXA mission is successful in 2023, what would that mean for lunar science? Okay, you, we get samples back. If we can get samples back, the, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ecstatic. Um, it will allow, I'm actually finishing up a paper right now that, uh, that, that details the targeted sample return uh, what targeted sample return could do, where we should go, why we should get, we should go there, what science can be done uh, with the return samples. Because samples, as, as Apollo has shown, are the gift that keep on giving. Samples collected in 1971, 37 years later, change our, our, our paradigm shifting data comes out of them because they've been properly curated and they're available for reanalysis in, in, in terrestrial labs. So, so sample return is 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 not just a mission. Um, it is a it is a whole whole gift to the science community. Not only the ones that are involved in the mission, but those that come afterwards. I wasn't involved in Apollo, but uh, I've been I've been analysing the Apollo samples now for mm, longer than I care to admit. So the the this this is something that that's critical. Getting samples back allows a lot more science to be done a lot more investigations to be uh, uh to be conducted and so of those 800 pounds of rocks uh that were brought back over, with all, over all the missions um so most of most of that uh most of those uh, most of that collection is still being analyzed or used in some way for research Okay, so so with regard to those rocks, there, there's actually some that haven't been opened yet, and we're, we're actually involved in. Uh, I'm actually involved in a in a team that's um, opening uh, two drive tubes, uh, the Apollo 17 drive tubes from Station Three that were collected. These are regular samples, uh -huh. uh, and they've never been opened until now. Uh, and, they were why not? they were deliberately collected so that technology could advance ah. um, and uh, these would be available uh, for future generations um, and now we think we have the technology to be able to understand the solar wind they were collected in vacuum on the lunar surface now, solar wind just hits the regolith and it sticks so as soon as you start jiggling the regolith around that liberates that 
So we, we understand a little bit about the solar wind from Apollo samples, but this is a minimum because they've been collected, they've been rolled around in a, in a rocket coming back to Earth. Um, and uh, so a lot of those volatiles, those solar wind species, have been lost. Um, but these ones were collected in vacuum on the moon, put in a vacuum container. Um, the lower one of the two um, was then, that vacuum container was put inside a vacuum container and it was stored frozen uh, pretty much since the mid 70s that uh, uh, waiting to be analyzed. So we could have our first real look at what the solar wind content of the regolith actually is if, if, and this is a big if, both of those vacuum chambers have, have maintained vacuum um, since, their, since their return from the moon. And this was the Apollo 16 mission? Se 17. 17, oh, okay. Uh, so, so from 1972, because they left in 72. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me just follow on with that. You know, the, the way that the Apollo samples are allocated is that you have to write a proposal to that su uh, sample allocation subcommittee that I talked about. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we, uh, we then look at the science that is being done. And, and part of, there are a number of um, flags that, that go off. Um, if, if more than 50% of the sample has already been consumed, uh, you have to have an amazing justification for actually getting some of that sample. Um, and otherwise it, it will be preserved for uh, future um, transformational science requests that will include that sample. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, the the fifty percent, what they term pristinity value, is something that that is adhered to. There are some that are below that because the science that needs to be done has been well justified and um, it is reviewed by a group of, of lunar scientists, and uh, the the allocations are made or not made or adjusted. Um, so, so that is, that is something that it's the science that drives the request. Um, so, um, so, and, and with it, with an eye on the future, if we can get more samples back from the moon, um, it is hoped that, uh, you know, that, that will also, uh, the allocation of those will also be, um, adhered to in a similar way such that generations not even born yet will be able to analyze them in the future. And so you are actually just opening um, a tube, a pristine tube uh, taken in the Taurus Litro Valley by either Cernan or Schmidt. Yeah, it was taken by Schmidt and he's part of the team. Ah, okay, great. So that's great to see yeah. he's still active. Oh, absolutely. Oh. Okay, good. <laughs> That is amazing, yeah. So what about the uh, the Artemis program? Uh, do you think it can still meet the goal of, of sending the the uh, the 2024 goal of sending the two astronauts uh, to the lunar south pole? If the budget can be maintained, and we're in the midst of a pandemic right now, I mean, money is everything. Uh, the if there, if, if all of NASA gets on board with this as being the goal, that would be good. Um, the administrator has been a breath of fresh air. Um, he is he is fighting um, a, 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 a how can I put this diplomatically? There are there are there are factions <laughs> yeah. within NASA that want to go to Mars okay. without the moon, and right. uh, 
we're going to the moon and Mars because don't worry about being diplomatic to learn how to go to Mars. You're never going to go to Mars. It's just too far away. Right. So you, you fall in the camp of, we need to get back to the moon, uh, boots on the ground to be able to successfully mount a mission to Mars. That is, that is, that is correct because it's been so long since we've sent humans to the moon. We don't know how to do it anymore. If we go directly to Mars, we're going to end up killing people, and that will kill the human space program. Good gosh. Um, so, so what we can do, and what we should do, and this is my opinion, that uh, that we have an opportunity now to bring the moon into our economic sphere of influence. Uh, we 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 have a commitment to ha- a sustained human presence on the moon. That's going to require local resources. That's going to require private industry involvement, because they contain the expertise in terms of how to extract and process resources. Um, what, what NASA is doing, and this is what the administrator has done masterfully well, is, is to make NASA a customer. This is what we want to do. We want to buy your services so we can do it. Um, and, and that is a, a start to the cislunar economy. That is, that is bringing the moon into our economic sphere of influence. So Jim Bridenstine is the administrator that you, you mentioned. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Jim Bridenstine has, has, has done a great job, um, and, and he's got vision, and he gets the vision. There are people in NASA that don't have his vision. Okay. Um, and because they are civil servants, they can't be fired. I've probably stepped over a mark now, but uh, I will keep going. Um, the, the, <laughs> the thing... The thing is, is that, uh, uh, you know, we need to learn to live and work productively off planet. And that's why we have a moon. It's close by. Um, it is an, an economic enabler for a new sector of the economy that will show um, Congress that we have a tangible return on the taxpayer investment through job creation. And if we don't show Congress that tangible return on investment through growth of the economy, through jobs, um, then and through technology benefits down here here on Earth, then when we we're going to set up a program that will be cancelled on a whim. So getting getting commercial involvement, growing the private sector in this area, is a is a way to generate a long lived program that will live beyond the political administrations. Yeah. Giving Artemis giving Artemis a twenty twenty four deadline. Uh, that that actually gave NASA a goal that it had to it had to meet, and there are those that have been actively or sorry, passively not not following the goal, so to speak. Right. And I'm not going to name names because that would be wrong. But, uh, but there's there's the the goal is going to be subject to everybody on NASA getting on board. It's going to be subject to having the budget from Congress. And there are those in Congress that don't want to go to the moon. So uh, yeah, our elected officials need to hear from the taxpayer to say, you know, I, I want to go to Mars, but I only see I, I see only see the way of getting humans to Mars and bringing them back successfully without killing them by going to the moon first. And so what are, what are your thoughts on Elon Musk and his Mars initiative? Send him. <laughs> But you're not very sanguine. You're not very optimistic 
about who's well, making it. <laughs> well, you, don't, you, you don't have to plan for a return trip, that's for sure. So, <laughs> okay. so I mean, they're going to be dead by the time they get there. God I mean, bless space them. Hard. Mm. It's a harsh environment. We know that. You're going to be six months in deep space, and then you're going to land on a surface, hopefully, um, and, and then you're going to be useless because the body is deconditioned. You've got to get used to gravity again. You're going to need infrastructure there to be able to do that. We need to understand what partial gravity does. We need to understand what we under, understand what microgravity does, but we don't understand the radiation environment. How do we mitigate against the radiation environment? It's, uh, uh, it's how you're going to keep humans alive. Do it in your own back garden where we have a moon that we can do that. Learn those technologies, those mitigation technologies, and, and develop those. Um, for example, if we can understand what how to mitigate the, uh, the, the dissolution of the, of the human skeleton in microgravity, we've just found a cure for osteoporosis. What, right. a, what a great thing to bring to humanity through the space program. So you, you, you've, you've got, to, got to look at these, these returns to, to society here on Earth uh, in order to have a long-lived, uh, productive um, uh, human spaceflight program. Right, but the so what happens though, and it doesn't look good uh, for the president for his reelection chances. To be honest, uh, it looks like uh, there may be a new NASA administration in a, in a Biden administration. Uh, would 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 Bidenstein? I, I assume he would pretty much automatically step down. Well, I would hope that Biden uh, that, that that Biden would ask him to stay. If, if you want to start building bridges, you keep the good people that, that, that were from the previous administration. It's not unprecedented. It's happened before. Um, he, has been, he has been a breath of fresh air to NASA. Why, why would you replace him with, a, with an astronaut? Well, no, or I'm a not, NASA I'm insider not, or not, something like that. I'm not asking he be replaced. I'm just asking the, uh, the question, do you think uh, he would stay on? And what would what would a Biden administration mean for for the Artemis program? Do you think? Um, well, okay, just a couple of questions there. Um, Bridenstine said that he wouldn't stay on, but I would hope he would be open to persuasion. Uh, the the as far as the the Biden administration means for Artemis, uh, the, in 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 my dealings with the Biden campaign, and and a group of us did write a white paper on space policy to them, uh, pointing out that. This is, a, this is actually, we're on a moon and Mars trajectory right now. And that's the way it should be because we, you know, those two communities are working well together. We have a near-term and a long-term goal for human spaceflight um, that is going to enable a lot of industry and a lot of jobs and a lot of, lot of economic growth in those areas that then feeds back well into, into this country. So why would you want to change that? Right. So, and, and from what I hear is there's, there's no major core shifts planned. Now, that's, that, they could be blowing smoke up my backside. I don't know. So, but uh, but uh, I think that uh, um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that whoever wins the election, I think Artemis is something that can be, uh, that will be preserved, that will continue on, um, hopefully with a bit better bipartisan support than it, than it has, especially in the House. Um, but then, then Jim Bridenstine has negotiated, he's done brilliantly with, with, uh, with Congress in terms of NASA's budget. So, and you've got, a, you've got a guy that understands Congress running NASA, don't really expect anything else. Uh, why would you want to get rid of him? Okay, so um, 
what to what we should should we be doing that we aren't in terms of lunar science uh, would a seismic network a seismometers uh, four or eight you know strategically placed seismometers be a game changer it would uh, certainly give us uh, unequivocal data about the lunar interior that we currently don't have that would then help to answer the core dynamo um, question that's come up through looking at the samples are these or are the are these magnetized through impact processes, or do they actually reflect a global core uh, dynamo uh, for the moon? So, so that that is something I think for science that is essential. The other thing that's essential is exploring these polar water ice deposits uh, that we now know are there, and they're in some abundance uh, to understand the compositions of, of what they are, um, how how thick they are. Uh, what is their what are their compositions? Where do they come from? Um, are they a renewable resource? There's a there's an issue that people think. Well, no, they must be ancient. Must they? We don't know. We have no idea. So, are you saying that the uh, does the moon uh, have a liquid core? Does it have any sort of uh, dynamo? Uh, does it have a core dynamo where any sort of magnetic field is currently being generated? As, as no magnetic field, but the, the evidence from the laser ranging suggests that there is a liquid outer core within the moon. Which, so, which, which suggests it's still uh, pretty warm. In the still interior. pretty warm, yeah, yeah, which is, how, how do you do that? Hmm. <laughs> I, that, that, that's, that, to me, is a surprise. So, so what puzzles you most about, about our own moon? What puzzles me the most? Wow, there's just so much. What is the what? What is this? What is the nature and structure of the lunar interior? That puzzles me the most because that then will allow us to understand whether or not it actually does preserve the primordial differentiation, the formation of crust, mantle, and, and core. That that puzzles me. But but again, the origin of these polar volatile deposits that puzzles me the most as well. Some of these young volcanics, that puzzles me most as well. Why, why do we have young volcanics on the moon? They shouldn't be there, sort of related to the liquid outer core question. Uh, there's, there's, there's many things. The more I look at the moon, the more puzzled I become. So, so, so what, is, what is the youngest volcanics on the moon, do you think? How, how recently was the moon volcanically active? Uh, some some estimates have it about a hundred million years. Good gosh. Um, some some have it as young as maybe as a billion years when you actually had effusive um, uh, flows on the on the lunar surface. Hmm. But a uh, hundred million years are these irregular Mari patches, are what they're called, or imps, and uh, they they have been hypothesized to be that young. Or they've also been hypothesized to be over three billion years old. Hmm. So a sample from one of those brought back and age dated with, with you know, isotopically in a, in a terrestrial lab would certainly answer that question. So three last questions uh, for you. Uh, okay. What prompted you to study planetary geology? <laughs> yeah, serendipity. Uh, that's, 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 that's the short answer. The longer answer is I, I got a job. In 1986, I got a postdoc that I never applied for. And I thought, oh, it's in America. Oh, two years in America. I could, that'll be fun. I'll do that. And I was 80% looking at uh, rocks from the Earth's mantle, 20% looking at Apollo moon samples. 
And when I got and started my job in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, I decided to f switch that to 80% Apollo samples, 20% uh, mantle samples. And I became enthused about the moon uh, through the samples since then. Uh, did four years at that job and then moved to Notre Dame in 1990 and kept that passion going with the with the samples and and study and, and, it, and it's evolved into you know engineering a little bit and uh, understanding about resources and now it's evolving into policy and and advocacy and and, and that, those sorts of things because it, it becomes a passion you know as I tell my students I've been very lucky because I've never worked a day in my life <laughs> if you love what if you love what you do absolutely. how can it be work absolutely yeah are you ever uh, daunted by the fact that uh, you're trying to figure out the evolutionary history of a celestial body that has allured humanity since time immemorial oh i mean it's if you do it that way then you people say well why bother well i mean you 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 study it you find out something then you study it a bit more you find out something else you add to a body of work that future generations will will hopefully build upon. That's uh, I'm not daunted by it. I'm having too much fun to be daunted. So <laughs> okay. so it's 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 that that's it. My I hope that my work will be the foundation for new 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 discoveries to be made and to move the the whole field forward as to in our understanding of of uh, our nearest celestial neighbor. So and uh, when you actually see the moon from your own backyard. What goes through your head? Wish I could go there. <laughs> oh, is that right? You would have, you would have been an astronaut if. Uh... Oh yeah. Well, I'm too. I I was too fat. I've got, I've lost a little bit now, but they need a bigger rocket if they were going to send me. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Clive, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media? Oh, I have a I have a Twitter address somewhere. Uh, people can get hold of me that way. Okay, and it's of course I, I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a uh, um, ignorant person when it comes to these newfangled uh, ways of um, setting up Twitter accounts. So my Twitter account is at Neil N E A for Apple L one four eight four zero nine two seven six. I think though, or, if they if they just uh, do a search, they can. That that yeah. will come up and and yeah, Clive Clive Neal. I don't think there's too many Clive Neals out there. No, so, well, no. Um, and then you, you'll probably if you just Google me, you'll probably find my email address as well. So cneal at nd.edu. You can contact me that way as well. So as always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at Bruce Dormany at dot podbean dot com or B Dormany on my Twitter feed. Clive Neal, let's hope the next time we speak, we'll have confirmation that Artemis is going to meet its launch deadline. <laughs> no, it's just hope we have confirmation that we're going to the moon and we're going to stay. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. I loved it. Thanks very much. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time. Clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>